Thank you, Julie. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 7, we're going to be looking at, uh, oops, okay, um, page 976 in your pew Bibles, we'll be looking at verses 24 through 37. Mark chapter 4, or Mark chapter 7, verses 24 through 37. Please rise with me as we read God's holy word. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an impure spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. Lord, she replied, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply you may go, the demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. Then Jesus left the vicinity of Tyre and went through Sidon, down to the Sea of Galilee and into the region of the Decapolis. There were some people who brought to him a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on them. After he took him aside away from the crowd, Jesus put his fingers into the man's ears. Then he spit and touched the man's tongue. Then he looked up to heaven, and with a deep sigh, he said to him, Be opened. And at this, the man's ears were opened, and his tongue was loosened, and he began to speak plainly. Jesus commanded them not to tell anyone, but the more he did so, the more they kept on talking about it. People were overwhelmed with amazement. He has done everything well, they said. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. May God bless this reading of his word. Have a seat. There is, in the line of philosophy, an ethical dilemma known as the trolley problem. Maybe you've even heard of this. In this hypothetical situation, you're you're given this choice. There's a trolley barreling down the road on a line, and it's about to hit and kill five people. You alone are standing at a switch, and you have the option to flip the switch and then send the trolley on a different path, which will definitely hit and kill one person. The question is, do you pull the switch? Do you pull that switch, and you are the direct result of the death of one person, or do you not touch the switch, and by your inaction, five people are killed? It's one of those, like, damned if you do, damned if you don't type of situations. There is no really right answer to that dilemma. Instead, it forces us to examine our decision-making process, why we do what we do what values you truly hold dear in your life. So a pragmatic person might choose to flip the switch for an entirely different reason than, say, a moral person might do the same thing. But no matter what, every time the trolley problem comes up and people talk about it, I think there's this sense that we walk away feeling rather disgusted that we can't just save everybody, that we can't make a choice that makes everybody happy. As Mark continues his gospel narrative here in chapter 7, we see a different kind of difficult situation in which Jesus has to make a choice. He has to make a choice between who gets the saving message of the gospel. 
Does he go with the people who God deemed from time immemorial to get the message of the salvation first, even though their faith was, by all accounts, rather weak and lacking? Or does he give that saving message to those next in line who have a greater faith? It's not exactly as as nail-biting as the trolley problem, but still, I think this situation presents a very interesting ethical dilemma for our Lord. So let's look at it today. So following the heated exchange of words between Jesus and the rather hypocritical Pharisees that we looked at last week, Mark records that Jesus left Galilee and went up into the region of Tyre. And this is, as far as we know from all our accounts in the Gospels, the only time when Jesus left Israel and went to a foreign pagan nation. In fact, Tyre wasn't just any foreign nation. Tyre and Sidon was what was considered by the Jews to be one of the most unclean, the most defiled Gentile regions in all of the the area. Remember how we were just talking about what defiles the heart? And Jesus says it's not what goes into it, what comes out. And then he goes into one of the most defiled nations in all the world, according to the Jews. Tyre and Sidon, which is actually where like Lebanon is today. That's where Jesus went. That, that had a long history of paganism, of pagan worship, and also being very hostile toward the Jews. And in fact, you might remember in the Old Testament, Queen Jezebel. You remember Queen Jezebel and, and, Elisha, and Elijah? Well, Queen Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon. That was kind of the, the fine, upstanding, moral person that this, these kind of nations would churn out. So when people study the Bible, they wonder this question of why did Jesus suddenly abruptly leave? Why did he go up there? And there's this discussion among biblical scholarly circles that Jesus did this because he was under imminent threat of assassination. Maybe the the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Maybe King Herod's men wanted to kill him. But there's a sense that Jesus went up there to hide out for a while because it wasn't his time yet. We see him trying to find a quiet place to lay low. But of course, this is Jesus we're talking about, and his reputation precedes him, and the crowds follow. And This is when Mark introduces a Greek woman. She's not given a name, but she was born in the region. And this woman comes up to Jesus, seeks him out on behalf of her daughter. And her daughter has been possessed by an impure spirit who has degraded her mentally, degraded her physically. She's been suffering for a while. And this mom knows that even though she hadn't been born as a Jew, she hadn't been raised in a synagogue, she hadn't gone to worship, she still had a faith that this man, Jesus, could save her daughter, could do something about this. Yet we get an interesting situation here. Instead of Jesus instantly saying, oh, yes, absolutely, I will come and heal your daughter, Jesus instead holds back on that healing. He holds back. And here, many readers of the Bible have stumbled over this passage. We get to this passage, and we suddenly have a hard time with it. This is one of those hard sayings I was talking about. Jesus initially ignores repeated requests. The Greek here is that she isn't just asking him once, but she's dogging after him. She's repeatedly asking him over and over, Jesus, please come, please come. And Jesus is ignoring her. Jesus ignores her. At best, we think, well, Jesus is just being rude and uncaring. 
But at worst, I want you to contemplate this. If Jesus is truly being really horrible here, he might even is being chauvinistic, or possibly, as some people have even written papers on, being sinful. He's committing a sin. He's being chauvinistic and uncaring and uncompassionate toward this woman who's repeatedly asking for his help. And then he goes on and compares her to a dog. This is where we really stumble over this passage. He compares her to a dog. And some people have written papers and say, well, Jesus is using the same insult that Jews would use toward Gentiles, and that the worst insult a Jew could possibly call a Gentile was to call them a dog, a scavenger, somebody, uh, one of those mangy mutts that goes around the t- town and eats dead things and garbage. Is Jesus calling this woman that same thing? Then Jesus is obviously stepping over the line. And if Jesus did sin, then obviously we have a big problem here because Jesus could not possibly be the sinless atonement for our sin. So we have to really examine this, this passage carefully because this is used often. You'll, you might have some people who don't have faith in Christ. They'll bring this passage to you and go, your, your Savior isn't perfect. Look right here. So let's look at this passage because I think this is really interesting. What are we to make of this? First of all, we need to consider the situation. Our God knows the hurts and needs that are in our heart. And Jesus obviously knows the stress and the anguish that this mother is going through. Yet sometimes Jesus will respond to our requests with silence. And we need to know what to make of that. Because sometimes we bring our requests to God, and he responds with silence. That's not a silence of indifference. That's not a silence of uncaring. That's a silence that offers us the opportunity to grow and respond in our faith. Because God knows that when we respond to him over and over again, when we come to him in prayer over and over again, when he finally responds, our faith will just grow in leaps and bounds. We're reminded here of the parable of the persistent widow, which Jesus himself told the people, of this woman, this widow, who wanted justice from an unjust judge and wore him down with repeated requests over and over and over again until the judge finally relented. And through this parable, Jesus was teaching the people that's how they needed to pray. Pray in persistence. Pray over and over and over again until God gives you his response. And so through this, through this example of holding back for this woman, Jesus is allowing the fullness of a moment to happen. Because sometimes God doesn't want to give you that answer right away. He's waiting for a fullness to happen. And so Jesus waits. He's allowing her the opportunity to become a woman of deeper faith. And notice how she keeps persisting in all these requests. She knows he's the one who can save her daughter, and she persists. And finally, Jesus relents and turns around. And yet again, instead of relenting and healing her, Jesus talks, spins off this quick parable, this, this metaphor to the woman. And I think it needs to be really heard in a playful tone. I think sometimes we read the Bible and we read every word that Jesus says in a very grave, serious tone that might be undercut by if you've ever seen one of those old gospel movies and Jesus never cracked a smile. He was always saying very ponderous, deep things. 
And sometimes Jesus said things very seriously. I think in this situation, especially when we look at the response of the woman, it's kind of a very playful tone. And Jesus, in this playful tone, points out, out, he says, ma'am, at the dinner table, the children get the food first. You don't feed the dogs the, the first food. In fact, he's not using the word for the scavenger dogs here that I was talking about. The word, the Greek word here is for basically for pet puppies. The domesticated little cute little doggies that you have running between your feet at the dinner table hoping that something will drop. That's the type of dog we're, we're talking about here. So Jesus says, ma'am, we don't feed the puppies at dinner first. We feed the children. And what Jesus is pointing to here is he's saying at first, Jesus' primary mission is to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament to come as a missionary bringing the gospel to the Jews first. The Jews were chosen by God as to have this order of, of who gets the gospel first, the Jews first, then the Gentiles. The Jews were to be given the consolation and reconciliation and redemption of Israel. It wasn't yet time, Jesus knew. It wasn't yet time for the message to go out to the Gentiles. The time was coming. The, the fullness of that moment was coming. And in fact, in Acts, that definitely would happen with the apostles and the Holy Spirit. Yeah, it's kind of ironic, I think, that up to this point in Matthew, or in Mark, we've never seen a Jew persistently dogging after Jesus, asking him repeatedly over and over for, for a situation like this like the way that this pagan Greek woman is. She's showing such faith. And even though Jesus knows he's come to be a missionary to the Jews first, he cannot ignore a woman who comes to him with such strong, repeated words of faith. Hebrews 11.6, I think, guides us in this. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God, because if anyone comes to him, he must believe that he exists, and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God rewards those who earnestly seek him. Earnestly, repeatedly. Do you earnestly seek God in your life? Or do you toss up one prayer and go, well, I prayed for it. Not getting an answer. Guess that's it. Instead, let's look at the model that this woman is demonstrating. The model that Jesus said through that, that parable. That we need to earnestly seek and pursue Christ. Pray not once, just over and over again. We should be praying, praying in God's will. God, if this is your will, let it be done. Let us know your answer over and over again. And find that when the, the fullness of that moment comes, when God finally answers your prayer, discover how your faith will grow in just such large amounts. So many times when Jesus tosses out parables in the Bible, there's usually one of two responses. Either there's somebody just scratching their head going, ah, what do I do with that? Or there's this amazement like, wow, that's really deep and profound. Yet in all of my studies, I have never found another instance in the Bible where Jesus has like an allegory or a parable, and he says that to somebody, and the person responds in kind, picks up that, that baton, and responds in kind the way that this woman does. I am, I'm not kidding you here. I am in awe of this woman. This woman says, shows such faith. Because be, instead of being offended by Jesus, I think we can immediately dismiss that Jesus is, is, 
calling her a bad name because she doesn't take it as such. Instead of being offended by Jesus pointing out her status as a Gentile who should be receiving the message second and calling her basically a puppy dog, she accepts the premise. She accepts that. And then she counters in the spirit of the parable with a reply that shows this mixture of bold faith and humility. And man, if you ever want to go straight to God's heart, show him a mixture of bold faith and humility. He loves that. Jesus has given her this golden opportunity to respond in faith, and boy, does she pass it with flying colors. She basically is saying here with this wit and this courage and this faith, she says, yes, Lord, I am a puppy. I don't deserve to be at your table, to have a place at that table to enjoy that feast. But I know that even the smallest crumb, Lord, the smallest crumb that falls down from your hand will be more than enough to help me and sustain me, and I will be satisfied with that crumb. What faith. What faith. We recently had to say goodbye to our family dog, Roxy, whom we love for many reasons. And one, one of the most useful purposes that that dog ever served was while they, after the kids had eaten their dinner, that dog would run around and would snarf up all the food that was on the floor. And some of you are nodding right now because that's what your dog does. When you have four kids like my dog had, that dog got a feast every day uh, of food that fell on the floor. I'm always surprised she never became the fattest dog in the world because of all those crumbs. Those crumbs became that dog's feast, and it satisfied her. And likewise, this woman in Mark knew that even a crumb from Jesus' hand, even the smallest, tiniest little bit of mercy from our Lord would be more than enough to address the terrible situation she was in. She goes, Lord, this is a situation that nobody else could help me with. Nobody else could drive this demon out of this, this girl that, that was wrenching this mother's heart. She turns to Jesus and she says, Lord, I know the smallest bit of power and mercy could do this great thing. That's the faith. That's the level of faith we're talking about here. And what I think is truly astonishing is that Jesus doesn't keep her under the table. He, put, he says, this is your place, but then... Jesus also came to be a missionary to the Gentiles as well. In Matthew 8:11, Jesus says, Many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at that feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is saying at this celebration table, which initially is populated by the Jews who have a believing faith, will be extended to all the Gentiles as well. And Jesus basically is reaching out a hand and drawing this woman up and placing her to sit at this table. She could have pursued Jesus with this persistent and been arrogant in her demands, been truly annoying. And if that was her case, I had no doubt she would have been denied even crumbs. Yet she has this, this humility and this faith. It sets an example for us, the kind of heart we must have when we go to the Lord with our requests. Don't presume God owes you anything. Don't presume that he must do what you want him to do. Instead, we have to be content with the crumbs that come our way. 
knowing that even the smallest bit could do our, our lives a world of good, knowing that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. So we move on from this story here as Jesus continues to travel about this foreign nation. In fact, he takes a very roundabout 120-mile trip. It's a weirdest trip. Like it, it probably took about eight months here that we're skipping between uh, these accounts. And after about 120 miles, I, we think Jesus was probably waiting for the right time to go back to Israel, maybe waiting for that, that threat of assassination to go away. Instead, we get this second account here at the end of those, those eight months of yet again, more people bringing somebody to Jesus on behalf of their suffering. So in the first case, it was a woman on behalf of her daughter. In this case, his friends bringing to, the, to Jesus this man who can't hear and can barely talk, who has a serious speech impediment that makes talking extremely difficult if not impossible. Can you imagine how people thought of him? Probably thought he was slow-witted. If you have ever talked to somebody who can't hear or maybe has a speech impediment, it's a very natural thing to maybe think that they're not all up there. It's the wrong thing to think. They're kind of trapped in their body. Maybe people were avoiding this man because he was just hard to talk with. And once again, the people who have faith in Jesus are content with something lesser. What they're asking for here in this passage is really for Jesus just to put his hands on this man and to give him a blessing, just a blessing. Instead, Jesus, you know, that's the crumb. That's the crumb they were looking for. Instead, Jesus goes so much further and transforms those crumbs into this sumptuous feast. I have to say, if we look at the attributes of Christ, compassion has to be at one of the top five, I think, right there. It's one of his greatest attributes. Because compassion not only caused Jesus to care for other people, it caused him to do something about it. And that's the dividing line between fake compassion and real compassion. My wife, Joy, is a very compassionate woman in many ways. One of the things I love about her the most, and that compassion comes out in many ways in our relationship. The other day, we were driving home from my birthday dinner. We just had my birthday dinner, we're driving home, and we're on our street, and Joy looked over, and there was an elderly woman struggling to mow her lawn. And man, my wife's heart just filled up with compassion, and she said, Justin, get out and mow that woman's lawn! That's what, that's what the compassion, you know, that's happened to her. But that's what compassion helps us do, not just care for people, but do something about it. Compassion drove Jesus to bring the gospel to the world, and compassion nailed him to the cross as a substitute for our sinful curse. And compassion is what compels him here to take this poor man aside and minister to him as an individual. Jesus uses this, it's really interesting, he's using sign language since he can't talk to him. He's using sign language to say, I'm going to open up your ears I'm going to open up your mouth. And then he heals them completely after this passionate inward groan, this appeal to the Father in prayer. And all of a sudden, the man could both hear and speak properly. And Mark notes that you could not shut him up about Jesus. 
from then on out. This man was just a, a testifying to him. And through these individual healings, we see a Savior coming to a broken world and taking those broken pieces and starting to glue them back together. I find it really interesting. If you actually, I don't want you just to hear this. Open up your Bibles, Isaiah chapter 35, because this, this will blow your mind. Isaiah 35, hundreds of years before Christ. If you have Jewish friends who doubt that Jesus is the Messiah, open up to Isaiah chapter 35 right here. Isaiah was pointing forward to days just like this. Well, you'll read early in that passage, early in that chapter 35 there. What's the page number, by the way, if we're struggling to find it? 695. You'll notice in like verse 2 or 3 right there that he's talking about who's going to be receiving the glory of the Messiah. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. Talking exactly about that region of Tyre and Sidon that Christ went to. And then, skip down a little bit and you'll see this passage. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the tongue of the dumb will sing. Isaiah the prophet is giving you very clear signs of who the Messiah will be. It will be the guy who will literally be making blind people see, deaf people hear, dumb people talk. And here we get the answer. Speaking of waiting for the fullness of time, the answer to that right here. Jesus' compassion, going back to that, didn't lead him to shrug and say, well, that's a job for somebody else. I'll feel really bad for you, but that's about it. It didn't lead him to do the bare minimum. Instead, his compassion resulted in a healing that made the people praise him by saying, he has done everything well. He has done everything good when you look back at Genesis chapter 1, and when Jesus makes the world and everything he makes, what is a phrase, and God saw it, and it was good. It was well. Jesus makes things good, and he makes things well. Jesus gives his absolute best when he creates things. So you don't get to turn around and say, well, God, you made this. And Jesus will go, yes, I did, and I made you well, you were fearfully and wonderfully made. And when Jesus heals this man, he doesn't do a part way. He goes all the way. I think when we look at our compassionate Savior, we turn around and we ask ourselves, are we becoming more Christ-like in our compassion as well? Do we see and truly acknowledge the hurting around us? I think there's a big temptation to put blinders on because it can sometimes feel overwhelming with everybody hurting around you and people coming up to you and they have complaints and they have hurts and you just go, oh, I just want to focus on myself. When they come up to you, do you bleed for that person? Do you pray for them? Do you care for them? And if you have the opportunity and the ability, do you reach out and do you touch them and help them any way you can? That's the compassion that should be in our hearts. Through persistent prayer and a humble heart and a compassionate spirit, we become day by day the people Jesus created us to be. It's a journey. It's a journey we're on. Our Savior came for the Jew and for the Gentile and for the individual, eager to draw them into his kingdom and invite them to dine on that banquet table. And maybe today we're just getting a crumb 
And maybe that's the, the thing that will sustain us. And we can turn around and say, look at what God did for me. I'm going to try to help you in return. But we, we are sustained by that crumb knowing one day we will sit at that table. We will feast in the fullness of Christ and in his glory. And that will just be the best day ever. And until that day happens, we will praise God for its coming. Let's praise him right now in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for these precious accounts in Mark of the faith that the Syrophoenician woman showed and how she approached you with humility and with boldness. Lord, help us to be humble and bold. Help us to be persistent in our prayers. Help us to be compassionate the way that you were compassionate to this man who is suffering in his deafness and in his muteness. And Lord, in all these things, we lift up to you our lives. May you mold them for your purpose. May you use us for your glory. And Lord, we just praise you for the ways that you have already done that. In your name, amen. Now receive the benediction. May you grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Go in peace.